Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. At our table, uh, someone said that there's an announcement. Uh, the White House put it out that the uh, Bruce Springsteen concert has been canceled. Uh, I don't know if that makes anybody here happy or not. You know, I, 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 grew, I was born in the South and raised in the South, and I'm kind of tired of being called a redneck state, aren't you? Yeah, you got the blue blood states and the redneck states. And uh, they ought to come up with some new colors, I think. It's kind of offensive. Well, last week, gentlemen, the week before, we had good speakers. <laughs> this week, I'm back. Uh, we thank Chuck and Rocky for their teaching us these past two weeks. Last week, we looked at uh, the issue of our tolerating a lot of things we shouldn't tolerate and trying to figure out what it is we should tolerate and what it is we shouldn't tolerate and how to be tolerant and intolerant uh, at the same time but in different ways. And uh, when we turn to the, the text we're going to look at this morning, which is the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that the basic message here is to wake up. Uh, Neil was praying in his prayer a moment ago that I'm going to be the alarm clock. I don't have much hope for that. <laughs> but you know what? The Bible can be, and the Word of God, the Spirit of God can be, and waking up can be very important. You know, uh, there was a kid one time who was walking out into the narthex of his church and with his daddy, and he saw the names up there, the memorial names up on the wall, and he said, Daddy, what's, what's, what are all those names for? And he said, those are the ones who have died in the service. And the uh, kids said, was that morning or, or evening service? You know? uh, and uh, there are a lot of us who deserve to have people take their naps when we talk. Uh, some of us have almost fallen asleep while we were talking. Uh, there was a story of a guy who went to a, a little banquet, and there were three speakers. There was a, there was a lawyer and a, a businessman and a preacher. And the businessman got up first, and he was very brief, right to the point, just as you would expect. And then the lawyer got up, and he made sense. He was logical, but he, he was wordy, let's face it. And he used some words the rest of us didn't understand. The third guy got up was the preacher, and he went on and on and on. And finally, the moderator took the gavel and threw it at him, missed him, hit a poor older woman in the front row. And as she was passing out, from the blow, she was heard to say, hit me again, I can still hear him. <laughs> they say if you take all the people who fall asleep on Sunday morning and put them end to end, they'd be a lot happier. So those of us who are preachers, we, we realize that this is a real trial for a lot of people to stay awake. But some of the sleep that goes on is not because of the preacher. It's because of the hearer. And uh, that's what we're going to hear in our text today. I noticed that, that Jesus is not blaming any of the preachers. And I, I like these texts, you know. He's holding the preachers in His hand. He's not blaming the preachers. These are some of our favorite texts, you know, preachers. But we, we know that uh, preachers need to be challenged too. I remember when I was ordained uh, over 20 years ago, the man who is, who is issuing the charge to me during my ordination charged me never allow the gospel to be boring. Because you might be, but it's not. <laughs> so 
if you're preaching the gospel, you will not be boring. So it's always been a challenge to me not to be boring. I'm afraid I've fallen short many times. But nonetheless, the church can be bored. Uh, church men can be bored. They can fall asleep. They can become lackadaisical. Something's deeply wrong with that. Not wrong with the gospel, but wrong with us. So let's take a look at it as the Lord Jesus Christ stands over His churches, speaks to them, and has a word for the church in Sardis. Chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, very quickly, let's take a look at the outline here. We've, we've seen that there, there's a pattern in all these uh, letters. There's, first of all, the church name is Sardis. Sardis, uh, by the way, was a fairly successful city in the interior. Uh, it had been destroyed some decades before, but rebuilt with tax monies and uh, had a good reputation among surrounding towns. Um, Christ's name, he is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. And we've seen the seven spirits uh, can be seen as the sevenfold Holy Spirit, the spirit who dwells in the seven churches. And the seven stars, of course, are the angels or could be the preachers or the pastors of those churches, the messengers to those churches. Christ holds the Spirit in His hand. He holds the preachers in His hand. Uh, he holds the angel of the church in His hand. And then commendation, whoops. <clears throat> this is one of the more severe letters we're going to run across. Uh, some, uh, there's one of the letters we studied that didn't have a real critique of the church. This one doesn't have a commendation of the church. Except that, hey, you look good on the outside. Not much of a commendation. The critique is you have a reputation, but it does not equal the reality of your church. So your life has a good reputation. People think well of you, but the Lord knows better. He sees down to your skeleton. He sees down to the marrow of your bones. And He knows what's on the inside. And He's not real happy with what He sees, even though you have a good human reputation. That's the critique. The instruction is waken up, strengthen but what remains, remember what you've heard and received, obey it, and repent. So those are the instructions to get us back on track. And then the warning, I'm coming. Watch out. And probably at a time you're not expecting. And the exhortation and the promise, overcomers will be rewarded. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's the basic pattern of the letter we're going to examine. Now let's get into it, take a look at it. The first thing Christ does is that he rebukes us. Verses 1 and 2. And we see from the very first verse that Christ is the one who holds the answers. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the one who's rebuking us, he's got the answer for us. 
And isn't this comforting? Every time the Bible confronts you, every time a Christian brother or sister confronts you with something that's true, and you get a rebuke, whether direct or indirect, whether in public where a word is going out generally to the group and you feel convicted, or whether someone's facing you face to face, if it's a Christian rebuke, if it's according to the Word of God, good news, Christ got the answer. You don't have to wallow in the rebuke. You don't have to stay there. And the purpose of a rebuke is to turn you around. When, when Christ turns His anger on His own people, it's not to wipe us out. It's because like a mother hen, she's angry at what is threatening her little chicks. And you talk about somebody getting upset, you look at, you look at the animal world and how mamas get upset when something's threatening their little ones. That's the way Christ is toward His church. He loves her. He loves you. And so when He comes and gets in your face, you can just realize you have a brother who is, who is putting out everything he's got to be sure you're rescued, be sure you're saved, be sure you're enjoying life. He came to give us life. He came that we may have life and have life to the full, says uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to the rebukes. They hurt. They humble. They sometimes convict and sometimes even depress us a little bit. But gentlemen, the purpose of a rebuke is to turn us around that we may enjoy the fullness of everything God has to give us. And the one who is rebuking us is holding the power of the universe in his hand. So in one sense, in one sense there is this fear and reverence for the power of the one who's speaking to us. There is a respect for the knowledge of the one who's speaking to us. The one who rebukes us knows everything. And he is perfect truth. Why fuss with him? He knows everything. We give Him honor and respect. And He is to be loved because the one who rebukes us holds the Spirit in His hand, life-giving Spirit. And He pours it out upon us and fills us as we ask Him to fill us. So he, He's holding the Spirit under His control. The Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ is pouring His Spirit, His own life, into our life. And He holds the seven stars. He's the one who controls the angels. Or if it's as we've seen, the stars can mean angels or uh, pastors. And either one, He's sending us those who are to bless us and serve us. And angels are nothing but servants under the command of God. And pastors are supposed to be nothing but servants, uh, sinful ones, but redeemed ones, in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ to help you get home safely and to help you enjoy this life. And we're all so often just like little kids. Anytime we get confronted... We, we assume immediately the one who's confronting us is our enemy. And some people are treating God like that. He's, he's your enemy because He opposes you. Well, He does oppose you because it says in the Scriptures, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So He does oppose us. He opposes His church sometimes, just like a mother opposes her children. So He is the one who holds the answer. He's the one who's rebuking us. It's the one who loves us and has all the power of the universe. So you can trust Him. And some of you guys have a hard time trusting anybody, any authority figure. It's one of the problems in your life. And you may have either been abused by your father or abandoned by your mother or who knows what. You've had all kinds of reasons. It's perfectly explainable. If we sat down and talked for an hour, I would say, you know, you make perfect sense. Except for one thing. Your father is not your God and neither is your mother. Your God is in heaven and He's not like your father nor your mother. He's something else. You need to learn Him and trust Him. And when you look at it from God's perspective, it doesn't make any more sense. When you look at it from your family of origin, it makes all kinds of sense. And that's the problem with dysfunction. It makes sense when you're in that dysfunctional family. 
it doesn't make sense when you come out. Because the, or, the world is not ordered that way and God is not ordered that way. And so coming out of whatever background you've had means shifting your paradigm about who is in authority. And the Lord is on His throne. And He is all-powerful. He is all-wise. And He is all-loving toward those whom He's called to Himself. So remember who's rebuking you. Jesus Christ, the perfect one. He's the rebuke. What? Who, who, who would you want to rebuke you? If you were to choose someone to tell you to wake up, who would it be? I remember <laughs> when my number four child, Mary, who's now 22, when uh, she was just a little girl, about four years old, I went into her room and, uh, and I went in to, to wake her up. And I went in and said, Mary, good morning. Are you awake? She said, no. And I said, well, why not? She said, today I want Mommy to wake me up. <laughs> Talk about having your self-esteem demolished. Well, who do you want to wake you up? Who would you choose? Some people choose the most brutal means you've ever seen. They choose it because of their dysfunction. They don't trust the ones who are trustworthy. And here is one who is ultimately trustworthy, and you're not trusting him to wake you up. You're allowing some other thing to wake you up or some other person to wake you up. And you're allowing yourself to be brutalized. You're allowing yourself to be confronted by someone who doesn't really give a rat's behind about your life. And Christ does. And He gave His life for you on the cross. And He's the one who's rebuking all of us this morning if we listen to His Word. Let's listen to Him because He does love us and He cares. He holds the answers. We cause the problems. He says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, what does He mean by this? Well, let's look carefully at the text. He says uh, in verse two or verse one, "You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead." So here is a church that undoubtedly is well known, probably well appointed, well regarded. You don't find in this description of Sardis uh, anything about their doctrine being heretical uh, like the other churches that we've studied. You don't find anything here about uh, scandalous, immoral behavior, the practice of the Nicolaitans, or anything like that, as we've seen in other churches. No Jezebel in this church. This church looks pretty slick. This church looks like it's got it together. And probably the people in Asia, uh, Turkey, uh, as it were, at that time, uh, named Turkey now, they probably said, you know, if you want to go to a clinic and learn how to do church, you ought to go over to Sardis. Uh, those people, they've got it together. Uh, they, they do church. Uh, they, they're pretty regular in it. And they don't have any major problems. So they must be blessed of God. That, that was the way that church looked. They were slick. They were socially distinguished. But they were spiritually dead. They were near the cemetery. How could this be that they look so good on the outside, but on the inside, they're dang near dead? And Jesus Christ is our Lord. And by His grace, He notices these things and calls us out of our near spiritual death. Now, what is it? Well, first of all, I believe it's half-heartedness. Because He's saying you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead, and then He says... Strengthen what remains and is about to die 
For I have not found your deeds complete. That is, you're doing some things, but they're not perfected. They're not completed. They're not finished. Or the, the, the Greek word really technically means just brought to the full. They're, they're, they haven't experienced fullness. So they're half-hearted. You're kind of doing it halfway. And what Jesus Christ is saying is, I, I hate half-heartedness. Because it's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial of what God's done for us. And I, I hate deeds that are halfway done. And why are they halfway done? Because you want to feel good about yourself and you want others to feel good about you too. And that's what's going on. It's for your reputation. It's not for your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's for your re- reputation in front of other people. Guys, this is epidemic in the church in which we live. In the churches in this community, it's epidemic. I'm trying to make a list of things that I've seen along these lines in my own life. And let me just read to you what I, what I wrote. What do I see that is half-hearted when I look around? Guys who don't take the gospel uh, nor their spiritual life seriously. Guys who play at church who never crack open the hymnal. Guys who don't know what a healthy life is or what a healthy church is, and they're not about to find out. Young guys who are so ambitious to get a great job and make a big salary, but don't really give a rip that children are not being educated in our city. Guys who do not confront their church when it needs it. And some of our churches, some of our pastors need to be confronted because they're preaching half gospels and giving half, half ethical moral teaching. They need to be confronted. You're a man. What do you think you're there for? Would you go to your business when something's illegal in your business and quietly go day after day after day and never say a word? You'd realize, of course, that you're a part of this. That's your business. And you know about it and you're responsible for it. But guys go to church all the time and crazy, idiotic, sinful things are going on week after week after week And guys like you have nothing to say about it sometimes. Guys who fall asleep during the sermon. (laughs) Either drink some caffeine or get yourself another preacher. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean it. Get yourself some caffeine or repent or get yourself another preacher. No sense in falling asleep or thinking about your golf grip every Sunday morning. Guys who think theology is for sissies. Who never study an issue seriously and develop a Christian world on life view so that they know what it means to be a Christian physician or a Christian druggist or a Christian businessman, Christian lawyer, Christian teacher, Christian minister. What does it mean? What's the difference between that and being a non-Christian in that area of life? Guys who never get outside of the United States and never see the poverty in the streets of Calcutta or Port-au-Prince or the slums of Nairobi. Guys who are wallowing in self-pity. Guys who are wallowing in pornography and alcohol abuse. Wallowing in it. Staying there and feel bad about it about three times a week, but not bad enough or not hopeful enough to get some real help. And they just live in the darkness of their repetitive abuse. Guys who know Jesus Christ will never say anything. uh, Guys who know Jesus Christ and then never say anything to anybody else about it. Guys who have kids who are spoiled rotten. Guys who are cheating on their expense accounts and tax returns. 
Guys who are driving fancy cars and have never lifted a finger for the poor. Guys who are content to be second class at church who would never be content with a second class performance in the workplace. Guys who are so ambitious to do a great job Monday through Friday and never think about the job they're doing on Sunday or on Saturday. And then I said, you know what, Wilson, you pretty well described yourself. <laughs> I mean, really, these are, these are just breaches of the Ten Commandments, and I've broken every one of them. And that's what half-heartedness is. It's going through the motions, engaging in the forms of religion. And there's nothing wrong with motions. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're going to be in motion. You're going to go through some motions. If you're a Christian, you're going to engage some forms. You have to. Because God is a God of order, and there are forms. And you will attend certain things, and you will give certain things, and you will do certain things out of duty. And there will be a structure to your life. Of course, there's discipline in your life when you're a Christian. But not mere structure, mere order, mere form, mere motions. What Jesus Christ is saying to the church is, I see your deeds, and I know them. Don't think I don't notice them. I see exactly what you're doing. But gentlemen, I see your heart. And I see a dissonance between the motion and the heart. And Christian ethics is an ethic that flows out of the heart. It is not painting by the numbers and looking at a rule book and trying to conform to it. It's having Christ and the Holy Spirit of Christ in our hearts. And He moves us. He's the one who moves us. He's the one who gives us form and order and discipline. It comes out of a personal life of Christ within us. Do you know anything about this? If you don't, you are doomed to mere form and order. Without His living in your heart and without a loving relationship with Him, you're doomed to painting by the numbers. And, you know, this is, this is heresy. I won't go ahead and say it because this is what I actually think. I'd rather be a pagan out there and at least have, you know, my three score and ten of fun than to be structuring my life as though I were a Christian and not even having the fun of the pagans. And then getting to the end and it's, it's I'm damned. Well, what the, how, how much sense does that make? And this is the reason that Paul says, if, if we do not believe in the resurrection, we are of all people, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection... We are of all people most to be pitied. Because if there's no resurrection, no real miracle in this thing, no ultimate eternal life, we've just structured ourselves right out of happiness. But the reason that we've structured ourselves into happiness is that it is because those structures come from being in love. It's like marriage. When you get married, you single guys, let me tell you, you've got some surprises ahead of you. There's some things you're doing now you will not do. And there's some things you're not doing that you will do. You will take out the trash on time as you're married. You will have a structure to your life. But if you have a good marriage, you'll find the light in the structures and those new disciplines. Why? Because you love her. And the form and the order is because you're seeking to communicate love to her. It's just the same way in our relationship with Christ. And what Christ is saying is that he's found our, our, our deeds half-hearted, incomplete, imperfect, superficial, external, to try to impress other people. That's called image management. Hypocrisy. That's exactly what he's talking about. Hypocritos in the Greek means play acting. And as you know, in the, 
in the ancient world, when you put on a play, if it's a comedy, you put on a smiley face and you hold it in front of you. If it's a tragedy, you put on a sad face. But they're all faces. They're all masks. And that's what a hypocrite is. He puts on a mask. And Christ is saying, I hate that. And all Jesus is saying is what He's been saying for thousands of years in the Scriptures. If you look in Isaiah, He says, your hearts are close to Me, or your mouths speak of Me, but your hearts are far from Me. So I've got your behavior, you're going through the motions, but I don't have your heart. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jesus Christ, and when He was here on earth incarnate, in Matthew 23, He takes on the Pharisees. What does he take on the Pharisees for? Well, there are a lot of things you take on the Pharisees for, but number one at the heart of it is they're play-acting. They're pretending to be something they are not. Christ hates that. You know how sometimes you hate something that's real cheesy? You know? That would be a minor way of talking about how Jesus feels about it. It just goes all over him. He can't stand it. When someone's taking a beautiful form that he has offered, and he's using the form to impress other people. It just grosses him out. So he's given us the forms in order to enjoy him. And a hypocrite takes the same forms and uses them to impress his neighbor. So he's basically saying, hey guys, you look great to each other. But I know what's going on. And you're half-hearted and you're trying to impress your neighbor instead of drawing near to me. You don't have to impress me. I've already said I love you because... I love sinners. So that's your claim to fame is that you're loved by God because He loves lousy people. You know? Welcome to the kingdom. So how much credit can you take for that? He loves sinners. He loves rebels. He loves people who spit in His face. That's the reason you're in this. So you can't impress Him. So you can forget about impressing anybody. But you can draw near to Him and enjoy Him. But we distorted, the Sardians distorted church in order to impress other people. It was interesting yesterday, some of you uh, undoubtedly were able to listen to CNN or PBS or somebody, MSNBC, and I don't know if any of you heard uh, Mike Barnacle, who's uh, you know, a Boston reporter, and it was very interesting. Uh, Mike Barnacle you know, is not uh, a flaming evangelical by any means, uh, and Barnacle was saying, you know, the interesting thing about this election is they were all trying to figure out what in the world happened. Uh, it was interesting, and whether you're a Republican or Democrat, and by the way, I've been asked several times, why don't you ever say anything about politics? I say things about politics all the time. What I don't do is take positions on candidates or parties. And, and the reason I don't think the church should do that publicly, I think we all ought to eventually do that when you go to the voting booth, but the reason I don't think the church should do that publicly is because the gospel is too great to be captured and captivated by any political party or any political candidate. And once I endorse this man or this party, I'm saying that's what Christianity is. And gentlemen, I've never met a person other than Jesus Christ who can encapsulate the kingdom in his own being. And Jesus Christ has a party, if you will. It's the kingdom. That's the one I belong to. It's the one you belong to. So I think the church needs to be very, very careful about endorsements, whether direct or indirect, uh, because the kingdom is a lot larger. And if you happen to be a Republican, uh, you can probably see most of the sins in the Democratic Party. You probably can't see most of the sins in the Republican Party. If you're a Democrat, oh, you can see the sins in the Republican Party. And you know what they are, and that's the reason you're not one. And you probably can't see the sins in the Democratic Party, which Republicans can clearly see, and if there's one sitting around you, they'll tell you all about it. 
And this is the way it goes in politics. And what a Christian has to do is to engage political life, vote our conscience, be informed, join a political party if that's the way you believe you can best promote the welfare of our commonwealth. But on the other hand, you never sell your soul away. You never sell away your prophetic voice. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a prophet. And prophets, if you'll notice, in the Old Testament did not have a way of currying favor with the kings. They were rarely popular with the kings. And so I would think that a Christian who's a Republican would probably be a pain in the neck to the Republican Party. I'm assuming that a Democrat who's a Christian would be a pain in the neck to the Democratic Party because you'd have an awful lot to say about each of your parties, what they're either ignoring or what they're engaged in that's not quite right according to the Word of God. So basically, Christians ought to be pretty much a pain in the neck everywhere they go. But then they ought to be servants everywhere they go as well. Servants. The servants who never compromise their conscience. So anyway, Barnacle. Barnacle is saying, and uh, my wife and I were sitting there next to me, and we both just were astonished. We'd never heard anything like this. Barnacle says, you know, I think they're all trying to figure out, the Democrats were trying to figure out why the Republicans won. And, and Barnacle said, you know, there's something to this moral thing. And... Uh, he says, I don't think uh, that those of us in New England understand it, and I don't think you in the media understand it, but I think there's something going on here. <laughs> well, and uh, then uh, if you saw PBS last night, they had Rick Warren out of Saddleback Church, and they had uh, Jim Wallace from Sojourners Magazine. And Jim, uh, Rick would obviously be a Republican, and Jim Wallace a Democrat. But they were both speaking about the moral issues that come to play. You know, the Republicans are more concerned about personal morality and the Democrats historically have been concerned about social justice, which is a moral issue, Jim Wallace was reminding us. But they were both saying these issues are important to Americans. Now, they'll only be important to Americans when the church commits itself to real, sincere, complete discipleship. And I want to say to you the only way the Democrats will continue to have a voice on real social justice is when they root it in the gospel. As soon as you leave the gospel, it's going to distort itself into a French revolutionary style of social behavior. The Republicans, all you're going to do if you leave the gospel is you're going to be concerned about your own economic advancement. And all your talk about responsibility, personal responsibility and all this, it's only so that we can play by the rules that you like to play by so that you can get ahead. And that's what Republicans tend to do. So Republicans and Democrats both if we don't root this thing in the gospel, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and continue to be prophetic no matter what party we belong to or what city we live in, then we're going to go the way of all flesh. And the whole thing's going to cave in around us. So what Jesus is saying, I see the whole thing. And I see the politicians who only want to know these moral issues so they can kind of voice them next time on the Republican and Democratic side and gain more votes. Because all they notice is blocks of votes. And that's, that's all the politicians seemingly care about on the surface level. Now, there are some very fine Christian politicians who care a lot more about things than that. But generally speaking, that's the temptation. Now, what's your temptation? How do you take the core of the gospel and distort it for your own advancement? How do you do this? Every one of us, we, you know, we can all see the sins of the politicians. We love to talk about how superficial they are, how, you know, how flip-floppy they are, all the rest of it. You know what? We're all that way in our de re uh, realms of endeavor. We use the gospel to advance our own personal, temporal convenience and comfort. That's called image management. And then cowardice. What some scholars say is really going on here is that Jesus Christ is looking at the church in Sardis and saying, you know what? You are caving into the culture. 
You're assimilating to look just like it. And you are losing your voice in the culture because you've assimilated into it. And one way in which you're losing your voice is that you're ceasing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we say that is if you look at how Jesus is described, remember that the description of Jesus is the, the mirror image, the, the counter image of the problem in the church. So if Jesus Christ is the one holding the spirits, the seven spirits and the messengers, the critique would be those who are not messaging the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's one hint. The other hint is he talks about them later being dressed in pure white and being overcomers. Jesus Christ Himself is the main overcomer. And He is dressed in white. Why? Because He has overcome those opposed to Him. And He is described in the Scriptures as the eminent witness Himself. Jesus Christ is the martyr or witness of all witnesses. The martyr of all martyrs. He is the one who has been faithful to the end and who gave a clear confession when He stood before Pilate. Think of it. If you saw the movie The Passion, think of it. Here's Jesus standing before the most powerful person in the whole region, the, the representative of Rome itself, and He holds to a true confession at the expense of His own life. There's the picture. And so what's being said here, there are some of you who are walking with Jesus dressed in white, but overall He's saying, I look at the church and they're willing to sell out and they know something and they're not communicating it to other people who need it. When the church closes its mouth, it begins to die. And so many guys are saying, you know, I, I just, I'm not the kind that speaks out very much. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit introverted. And I, yeah, I've seen you at Ole Miss football games too. <laughs> and some of you guys, I won't mention any names, but his last name is Coakley. You come in here dressed in orange. Or black, depending upon the results of the previous weekend. I know how you feel. And I know when you really care about something, you get exercised about it. Some of you got really exercised about the election uh, on both sides. So it's a matter of what you're exercised about. And when you really understand what Christ has done for you and what His death on the cross meant, you're going to get exercised about it. You can't have somebody lay down his life for you when you didn't deserve it and then provide for you eternal joy and not be exercised about it. And so when your mouth is not speaking of his praise, when you're not trying to encourage other guys to give consideration to their spiritual lives, when you're not trying to rescue others like Jesus rescued you, you you've lost your heart. You've been deadened. And that's what's going on. It's a cowardice in front of the culture because whenever you open your mouth, there's going to be opposition. This is not a 21st century phenomenon. This is an ancient phenomenon. Whenever you open your mouth on behalf of the King of Kings, you will be opposed. Some of us get more opposed than others because we, our diplomatic skills are very minimal. And certainly we need to learn good diplomacy. And remembering that when we open our mouths to this world, we're opening it because we love the world, not because we're trying to condemn them. Jesus Christ said, I, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why? Because the world's condemned already. They're already in trouble. They're already under the curse. So we come into the world just like Jesus Christ, not to condemn. That's already been done. We come to save. And with tears and prayers and with entreaties. 
So, gentlemen, uh, unless you're ready to die, unless you're ready to be deposed from whatever high position you're holding, you're not ready to open your mouth. And you're going to be a slumbering, near-dead corpse uh, one of these days. Well, a corpse is dead, isn't it? You'll be a slumbering, near-dead body because you're not opening your mouth. The Dead Sea is dead, not because it doesn't have an inlet, because it doesn't have an outlet. And that's the way many Christian lives are. There's no outlet. And so we begin, like the ones in Sardis, to die. And that's what makes Jesus very angry because He doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live. But then notice secondly, verse 3a, Christ revives us. He does rebuke us. The one who loves us and has all power rebukes us for our slumbering behavior and attitudes. But then He revives us. And how does He do that? First of all, He says, remember. Remember what you've received. Remember what you've heard. Now, John Stott says that what Jesus is referring to here when He says what you've received, He's referring to the Spirit. Remember that you have the power of the Spirit in your life. So you, you have the power to overcome. You don't have to assess your situation based upon your gifts and your talents and your inclinations and your training You look at your situation and what needs to be done and what you're going to do about it based on the power of Almighty God. And He says, remember what you've received. You've received Him. And this divine power is working through you. So there's no task too large for Him. Every task is too large for me. But there's no task too large for Him. And remember what you've heard. You've heard the message that transforms the world. And a slumbering church ceases to believe that. And they get themselves convinced that, well, you know, all religions, they all have their ways, and mine has this way, and others have that way. And, oh, they've grown up this way, so they wouldn't possibly be interested. Yes, they would. Because there is no message like the Gospel. None around the world. And when I talk to people of other religions about the Gospel, they look at me, first of all, before they're converted, they look at me with these glassed-over eyes and disbelief. How can you believe in something where someone else pays the penalty of what you owe? They have the hardest time understanding this. I'm telling you, there's nothing like the gospel. It staggers the imagination. And when people first hear it, if they come from a moral background, whether Islam or Judaism, especially a moral background, it sounds immoral to them. It's scandalous. And then it angers them because they want personal responsibility because they think they've been earning their way. And now you're telling them by the gospel, not only have you not earned your way, you can't possibly earn your way. Because you're under a curse that can't be lifted unless somebody else lifts the curse for you, namely Christ dying on the cross. This is a radical message that alone changes lives and enables men to live deeds in their lives that are complete, that are fulfilled, that are from the heart. Your heart has to be one, and the Gospel wins it. So remember what you've received, whom you've received, and remember what you've heard. Now, obey it, says Jesus. Golly, isn't it amazing? I, I know this is true of Presbyterians. Some of you have other traditions that are more activistic. Uh, for example, last night, uh, PBS, Mark Shields was also talking about this moral thing. And he was very blunt about it too. Mark's from Boston too. And they were all trying to figure out, what is this deal? You know? And, uh, and uh, Shields says, well, you know, Protestants, uh, they're more individualistic. He said Catholics and Jews are more communitarian that uh, they see, you know, the Protestants see their religious life based on their personal relationship with Jesus Christ and Catholics and Jews see their relationship 
with God or see their religion more in terms of how they treat their neighbor. Maybe there's some truth to that. I don't think that's exactly right, especially those of you who are Catholic, I think might disagree with that. But nonetheless, however you analyze it, uh, the question is, are you going to obey what you know? That's the question. And are you going to just pack your mind with concepts and say, you know, I'm a pretty religious person. I've read a lot of books. Are you going to take what you know and put it into practice? And what Jesus teaches over and over again is be very careful how you hear. Because the one who has will be given more. And the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. What's he saying? Is that cruel, reverse Robin Hood theology? No. He's basically saying until you put something into practice, you don't really have it and you will not receive any more. And some of you have been reading the Bible and you've been doing all kinds of things and you haven't put into practice what you know your conscience is telling you to put into practice. Until you put that into practice, you ain't getting any more. It's it's the judgment of God's holy word that he gives you what you put into practice. And it's, it's a relational and experiential religion. And so you put it into practice and you get more wisdom. And some of you guys are wondering why you don't have the discernment. The reason is you've never repented of what you didn't put into practice that you knew you were supposed to do 10 years ago. You put that into practice and you'll gain in wisdom and gain in wisdom and you'll grow in depth of insight and discernment. So usually what's happened when you feel as though you don't have much wisdom and you're having to seek advice for the simplest of things is because your conscience has been seared because you've ceased to obey your conscience a long time ago. It's it's burned over. The good news is you can revive it. You can repent. Praise the Lord for repentance. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Just like faith is a gift of God, repentance is a gift that comes down from heaven. So Jesus is saying, remember, then obey what you remember, but remember this, that repentance is a gift that comes to you. It's deep. It's not just external conformity. It's the conformity of the heart. And it's turning decisively away from the old ways. Turning decisively to trusting your King believing that He's benevolent in His intentions towards you, believing that He is the way, the truth, and the life, believing that by following Him, you're going to be blessed, and believing that following this way is to be cursed. I'm turning away from the curse. I'm turning toward the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's repentance. And if you feel like you don't have that decisive determination in your heart, pray this very morning, God, grant me repentance, whatever it means. Please give it to me. And repentance and faith come together. You can't repent without believing in the benevolence of the one toward whom you're repenting. And you can't repent without knowing in your, in your heart of hearts that the things you've been doing are leading to destruction. So there's a belief. There's a mentality. It's coming from the inside out. You're not just painting by the numbers. You're convinced. It's metanoia. It's change of mind. It's change of perspective, change of heart. Your whole system is changing. Now, this is called the new birth. It's a radical transformation. You know what? It's available to anybody here who wants it. The problem is you don't want it until the Lord works in your heart. So you say, what can I do? Ask Him to work in your heart. If you know that your life is leading toward destruction, ask Him to work in your heart. Those of you who are believers and you know that you've been slumbering, you know that you've been asleep, you know that you need to wake up, look at this Lord Jesus Christ. Realize that He knows even the thoughts of your heart, the intentions of your mind, every choice you make. He not only knows the choice you make, but why you made it. He searches every aspect of your being. Realize this is who He is, and He wants you to enjoy life. And He's the judge. And repent. So it comes with remembering 
whom you've been given, remembering what His Word has said to you, obeying it, and looking for that deep, heartfelt turn in your life that God can provide. And let me just say this. We've got ten more minutes. But let me, let me say this. For those of you who are not really sure you've got a hold of this, some of you maybe are visiting for the first time today, or some of you have started to come and visit with us. We're just so glad to have you here. You're no longer a visitor. You're an amener, whether you knew it or not. Uh, and just remember that if you don't know that you have this, this is what we're here to help you with. This is the whole ball of wax. You know, we want you to understand the book of Revelation. Uh, and, of course, the book of Revelation is what wakes us up. We've seen that already. And that's the reason that we have the book of Revelation, because Jesus loved the church of Sardis. And he's saying, wake up. So what does he give us? He gives us a vision of heaven. And he gives us this big panorama of the scope of history because that will wake us up when we see how glorious Jesus Christ is. And if you need to be waked up, you need help, you know you need to figure this repentance thing out, and this Christian thing out, please email me and let me know. Wilson, two L's and Wilson, dot the I, Wilson at 2pc.org. Just let me know. And either I or someone on our staff will get with you and help you. So don't, don't go out of here thinking you're damned. You may be convicted. You don't have to be damned. You don't have to be. You don't have to be under a curse. There's life through Jesus Christ. So Christ revives us. That's His whole intent. Now lastly, Christ rewards us. And see how He puts it in verse 3b. First of all, He addresses the faithful. And you realize that when Jesus is speaking to the church of Sardis, the reason that they're not already completely wiped off the face of the map and the reason He has not removed His lampstand is because there are some real believers there and there's some real life going on. So even in a hypocritical, image management, cowardly church, there are real believers there. I remember my predecessor at Lookout Mountain. When he went to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church in the mid-60s, there were three believers. One of them was on the session. The rest of the elders were basically unconverted. It was a very difficult ministry, 22 years. But at the end of 22 years, the church turns around. Every one of the elders, by the time I was there, was a Christian as far as I knew. There's a lot of pain and heartache that goes in with that, as you can imagine. But God will take something that's very hardened. And there was one elder who was praying, Lord, please have mercy on me and on our church. And guess what? 22 years later, there's a church that's on fire, sending missionaries around the world and supporting good causes in Chattanooga. So God sees the faithful. If you happen to be in an unfaithful church, He sees this. All He's saying to you is, would you please be faithful where you are? If you've got problems in your Sunday school class or in your church or in your family, you just be faithful. You're not going to be condemned for the sins of another person. But you will be condemned if you go the way of, of the dead church. And you just let them sweep you along, you will be under God's curse and His anger. But He says, I see you in verse 3b. Uh, he says, um, uh, well, first of all, he's talking to the unfaithful. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So, fair warning. If you're unfaithful and all you do is have your name on a membership roll, you've got a place, <laughs> like my old financial secretary at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church used to say, uh, when someone would die and I didn't know them, which was a rare thing because the church was maybe a thousand members. I knew pretty much everybody in the church. But every once in a while, somebody would die and maybe they lived in another part of town that never came to church. And I would go to old financial secretary. Of course, financial secretaries, they know everybody. And I went to her and said, who's this person? She said, oh, they're BPO. I said, what's that? She said, burial purposes only. <laughs> and you know what, gentlemen? Some of you are burial purposes only. 
Let's get off of it. Because if you're BPO, Jesus is saying, I'm coming back at a time you do not expect. And if you're BPO, then BPO is what you'll get. Unfaithful. But He does see the faithful. He says, you're not soiled. You're worthy. And He uses the same word that He uses about Himself. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is Jesus Christ. Why? Because He gave a true profession and He laid down His life. And what Jesus is saying about people who are in a difficult, conflicted, nearly dead church, I see you. And you're living worthy lives. You're still holding forth the truth. You're still using your influence. You still are setting forth Christ even at the risk of being marginalized in the workplace and in the church place. I see you. And let me tell you something about yourself. You will overcome. And when you do overcome, you'll be dressed in white. What are we told about Jesus Christ? He's in glorious array. And what does He say about those who are faithful to Him? You will be in glorious array. And the language here is not quite clear whether He's simply talking about the future or He's talking about also the present. For example, if you look, He says in verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. That means they've not been soiled by the paganism of their own day. They will walk with Me dressed in white for they are worthy. Some scholars say He's talking about right now. The Lord is saying, you are dressed for Me and you're walking with Me even though you're in a slumbering church. You'll be dressed in white. You'll be kept in the book of life. And there's not anything that can take your name out of it. And so others may threaten you with the trade guild as we saw last week and weeks before. Or they may threaten you with your own popularity. Or they may threaten you and call you a religious nut. They may threaten you a lot of ways. Why am I telling you something else? You won't be threatened by Christ. He says the threat is over. Your name is in the book and it will never be erased because you have identified with the King of Kings. So you don't have anything to worry about. No fears. And then you'll be acknowledged before the Father. Here's the amazing thing about those who repent of their cowardice and decide they're going to live for Christ. Not brashly, not proudly. We don't proudly speak of Christ like we proudly wave the flag. We humbly speak of our total indebtedness to Christ. And we're not proud of ourselves for being Christians. We're proud of Him for being Christ. And there's a huge difference. And so we proudly, if you will, boast of Christ. Paul said, may I never boast about anything except the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ through whom I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. So there's a boasting of Him. And what Jesus is saying, here's the great, beautiful conclusion to the matter. When you go out proud of Him, boasting of Him, speaking of Him, living for Him, here's what He promises to do. He's going to come back and be the preacher. He's going to come back and be the witness. And here's what He will testify to as witness. Those are my men. Those are amen, not be men. Amen. Those are my guys. And we are told here that He will stand up before the entire universe and be proud of us. He will acknowledge us. He will not say, oh, you know, Philip's over here. You know, I, I don't know if I, I don't... He embarrasses me, you know. Johnny won't say that about you. Phillips, he's my man. I love him. He's my brother. I've been living in him and working in him for years. 
He'll stand up for every single one of us by name and He will acknowledge us before the Father and all the holy angels. He will acknowledge us before the array of the hosts of armies that He has to win the last great battle. And He'll say, these are my men. I'm telling you what, this day I'm looking forward to. And if you believe it, you'll look forward to it too. And if you believe it and look forward to it, you will not allow yourself to bow the knee to anybody else who is waging war against the King of Kings who loves you and will acknowledge you before the Father. You won't have anything to do with it because you are part of something so grand and glorious and cosmically victorious. You will not give up your crown. And that's the motivation of the Gospel. That's what wakes us up. Is that we're dealing with something huge here. Something grand. And someone grand and powerful who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. Remember. And obey what you remember. Repent. Wake up. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your sacred Word. And we pray that You'll help each one of us to wake up this morning and to realize what the kingdom is all about. That it goes way beyond republicanism and democratism. Way beyond what America's interested in. It is so big and so glorious. And we belong to it. We're Your people. We're Your citizens of Your nation, Your kingdom. And we're so grateful. Lord, for any here who do not know themselves to be citizens of that kingdom, we pray that You'll bless them today. and Draw them in and enable them to search out these things that they too may have the blessing of God in and through their lives. So Lord, as we leave this place, we go thankful for all Your tender mercies toward us and especially thankful that we belong to One who is so great and that we belong to a cause and a kingdom that is so mighty and so noble that our lives, no matter how low we may have thought of ourselves, our lives are ennobled themselves because we're Yours. So Lord, fill us with Your Spirit. Bring to mind the things that we heard and cause us to obey from a heart that is profoundly repentant. We pray this in Jesus' name.